Hello, everyone. I'm Mistral, bringing you this latest episode of the Talks at Google podcast with surgeon, public health researcher, and MacArthur Fellow Atul Gawande. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode of this podcast is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. In this episode, Atul Gawande discusses his number one New York Times bestseller, Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End. Modern medicine has transformed the dangers of birth, injury, and infectious disease from harrowing to manageable. But when it comes to the inescapable realities of aging and death, what medicine can do often runs counter to what it should do. Through eye-opening research and gripping stories of his own patients and family, Gawande reveals the suffering produced by medicine's neglect of the wishes that people might have beyond mere survival. Riveting, honest, and humane, this remarkable book, which has already changed the national conversation on aging and death, shows how the ultimate goal is not a good death, but a good life, all the way until the very end. In conversation with Googler Tom Smith, here's Atul Gawande, Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End. Thank you for taking time on your lunch to um, come talk about death. <laughs> um, I, I'm looking forward to the conversation. I'll probably talk for about 15, 20 minutes about the, the basic um, thinking behind the book, and then we'll, uh, we'll go from there. Um, so why would I write about death and dying? Um, and the core of it was that I'm a sur- surgeon, but also in public health, and became interested as I was going through my uh, Training and then in practice, with about the fact that um, I was slowly becoming confident in learning how to deal with problems where we had fixable, so we had fixable problems, we had solutions that we could um, uh, offer to many things where the human body can go wrong, and yet we are all mortal. And I, what I never learned was how do we deal with the unfixables? How do we deal with the reality of mortality? And the thing I found that came up again and again as I entered into practice and continue to practice um, is that we have a substantial number of people who come in who have incurable problems. They are the problems of the frailty of old age. They have terminal illnesses. They have chronic illnesses that are just getting worse. And then the puzzle becomes, well, how far do we go in fighting the consequences of an incurable cancer? of an organ failure, of old age. For example, um, a piano teacher comes in. She has an advanced uh, cancer in her pelvis. It's spread to her liver despite two different lines of chemotherapy that we've tried. Now what do you want to have happen? What do we all want to have happen at this point? Should we do something? Part of the discussion with her was, um, well, the, there are no conventional options. So there are experiments we can try, however. We could try an experimental bone marrow transplant and high-dose chemotherapy. There's, there's something we can come up with. Or alternatively, should we keep her comfortable? What she heard as we're having this discussion is, should we fight? Or should we give up? 
Now, what I knew was instinctively that didn't feel like the right question to be asking, but I didn't know how to think about it differently. This is the way we always think about it. And so I ended up writing the book out of a desire to try to figure out what is the way out of that getting to a better question and not just a better answer. Along the way, I ended up interviewing more than 200 um, people, more than 200 families, patients, about their experiences with very old age, with um, terminal illness, with uh, incurable conditions. And what I found was that the discussion about how we deal with mortality was not what I expected. It wasn't really about dying. It was about living. That the goal was to be able to have not a good death, but a good life all the way to the very end. And that's where gradually the key lesson emerged from this, which is that people have priorities in their life besides just surviving. They have things, they have reasons they want to be alive. What those reasons are, what those priorities are, you have to ask, especially when people have a serious illness a, um, or frailty, advancing frailty of old age. You have to ask. Otherwise, our priorities, well, our, our priorities for their care can be out of alignment with their priorities for what matters to them. And that's when you get suffering. I interviewed people in old age homes, for example, and um, they tell me about how miserable they were. And they tell me about, um, you know, the, the most common thing you'd hear from people in old age homes would be, when do I get to go home? And try to probe, like, why does this not feel like home? What is, what is it about this that is not home? And they said, well, I, uh, I couldn't have my own furniture because, you know, it's not safe. You, uh, you can't have a drink because it's not safe. You um, wake up at a set time, get in the pill line, wear the prescribed clothes when they have you do that. Um, and uh, they, you know, they choose who you might have as a roommate. You don't have any choice about those things. You don't have any privacy. What does this sound like to you? Prison. Exactly. And that's what they felt. They were in prison. I interviewed an 85-year-old woman who had Alzheimer's disease. And um, she had a medically ordered pureed-only diet. And she would be caught stealing cookies from her neighbors. And so they'd confiscate the cookies. And then they'd write her up. <laughs> Send notes home to their adult kids, you know. And you just want to say, let her have the damn cookies. But what we were not figuring out was that we weren't identifying what were her priorities besides just surviving, besides just living longer, besides just not choking on cookies, for example. And she was telling you what those priorities were by the very fact that she was stealing cookies, that her joy, here's this one joy she's got, was food and the sheer pleasure of getting to enjoy that. And why couldn't that matter to us? And you see that same problem in medicine in general, that the, you know, here's this woman with a piano teacher with advanced cancer in her pelvis that had spread in the hospital in pain. And we had no imagination that there might be something about her life 
worth living for. We say, so our conversation becomes, should we try something or should we not? And then I've seen the result. We always have something to try. We always have uh, an operation I can do. And I've taken people to the operating room out of hope that we would find something, only to have them in the intensive care unit, never to wake up again, declining over a couple of weeks, never getting to say I'm sorry, never getting to say I love you, never getting to say thank you, never getting to set their legacy. And, uh, and that's when I realized that, um, well, I'd been realizing all the way that something was wrong with that, but that there might be a way out of this. The, there was a study done of um, advanced lung cancer patients, stage four. They, this is, uh, we don't have a treatment, a cure for it. We have treatments, but we don't have a cure. The average survival was 11 months for the patients. Half of the patients were randomized to receiving the usual oncology care, and the other half received the usual oncology care and a visit with palliative care clinicians. Palliative care clinicians focus on making sure that you're getting the treatments that improve the quality of your life. And it starts with first identifying what does quality of life mean to you, asking those questions about what your priorities are. And the result was that those people who got the oncologist and the palliative care consultation um, had a very different outcome from the ones who just got the oncology care. As a cancer surgeon, people would say, should I see the palliative care clinician now? And I'm now embarrassed to say, I, I used to answer, no, 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 it's not time for that now. As if, you know, we still have options, as if focusing on quality of care was opposed to quantity of care. And so the result was that uh, the group who got the early palliative care ended up choosing um, uh, they were 90% less likely to be on chemotherapy at the last two weeks of life because they stopped it sooner. They were 50% less likely to receive chemotherapy in the last three months of life. They had more time at home. They, were less, they spent less time in the hospital by a third. They were less likely to die in the hospital. They started hospice care sooner. Uh, they had less suffering by multiple measures, including less depression and anxiety. They had one-third lower costs, including hospitalization and chemotherapy. And the kicker was they lived 25% longer. If it was a drug, this would be a multi-billion dollar blockbuster and the FDA would like put it on expedited approval. But instead it was just having these conversations. We can't scale everybody having a palliative care clinician. And in fact, it doesn't make sense to say, I've got my specialist looking after my quality of life, and I've got my specialist looking after my quantity of life. What you really want is to put them together. And so then how do you do that? And what I found was that, um, uh, that when I would ask palliative care doctors who do this kind of work, what exactly, you're in this trial, what were you doing differently? How do I scale what you do? What, what is your checklist that I should be following the next time I have a patient that has this question? And the first thing they pointed out was that um, I talk too much. <laughs> they said, you know, your problem is you're an explainaholic. When you have someone who has a potentially difficult or unfixable problem, a serious illness, a terminal illness, then you want to ask 
questions that help you learn what their priorities are. And that means you have to listen. You have to listen at least half of the time. And that means asking questions. What kind of questions, I said? Well, start with, what's your understanding of where you are right now? What your situation really is? What are your fears for the future? What are your hopes for the future? What are you willing to sacrifice and not willing to sacrifice for the sake of more time? What's the minimum quality of life you would find acceptable? And that gives you a very different way of thinking that I'm not just there to be a retailer giving you the facts of your options, your pros, your cons, your risks, your benefits. Do you want the red shoes or do you want the blue shoes? Tell me what you want now. It's to say, what are your goals? And then how do I serve as a counselor who can match what I know about the options to what your goals might be? I asked the questions to that piano teacher, for example, and wrote about it in the book. And I said, so what's your understanding of where you are with your health? And she said, I'm going to die. I know it. I've been here in the hospital for two weeks, just getting worse every day. People are giving me blood transfusions and treatments. But I'm going to die. And her husband later said that was the first time she'd heard her just name it, just say it. This is our situation. And then I went to the second question the palliative care doctor gave me. I said, so what are your, what are your goals then. And she said, I don't know. <laughs> I can't imagine having any goals at this point. The palliative care doctors didn't tell me what to do with that one. <laughs> so I just went to the next question. So I said, then what are your fears? What, what are your fears for the future with your health? And, she's, and then she gave me a litany. She feared being in more pain. She feared um, that she would... Uh, that she, would, she already was becoming incontinent and that she would lose even more of her dignity lying there. She feared she would never get to go home. She, there were people she wanted to f- see and she feared she wouldn't see them. Now I understood something about what really mattered to her. The, um, along the way, I had gotten to, I'd also spent time interviewing people like hospice nurses and traveling with them or nursing home directors or... Uh, home health aides and others. And one of the hospice nurses had said to me that um, uh, that medicine's goal is to sacrifice your life and time now for the sake of time later. Her goal was to, um, was to give you as good a possible day today using the same medical take capabilities, regardless of what it might mean for the future. So the opposite of sacrificing your time today, she wanted to give you the best possible day now and then to see what happened. And so I said to um, the teacher, her name was Peggy, uh, I said, um, well, I'd met this nurse and she said that um, you know, the goal of hospice was to have, see if you could have the best possible day you can. I said, it seems like you'd, you know, was that something that we could try fighting for. This isn't about do you fight or do you give up. This is what are we fighting for? And what if what we fought for was that you could have one good day? It seemed like a long time since you'd had a good day. 
She said, yes, it's been a very long time. That, she felt like, was worth fighting for. 48 hours later, she went home on hospice. Uh, and I knew her, I didn't tell you this, but I knew her because she was also my daughter's piano teacher and had, was seeing me for advice about what to do. And so when she went home, I also had to tell my daughter that she wouldn't be getting piano lessons anymore. And she asked why, and I had to explain that Peg was dying. My daughter was 13 then. She wanted to go see her, and I said I didn't think that was possible. But then a few days later, I got a call from Peg. And she wanted to know if it was okay with me and okay with my wife, whether she could start teaching my daughter Hunter piano again. That blew my mind. <laughs> Here was this woman laid out, bedridden, incontinent, in pain, and now she was calling about the idea that she could start teaching again. I got to talk to her hospice nurse sometime later, and I said, what happened? What did you do? She said, well, she got home, and we spent some time, and we talked, and we said, you know, what would a good day be for you? And on the first couple days, it was just get the pain under control. And so she increased the pain dosages. They got a bed put in in the dining room so she didn't have to go up the stairs to go to the bathroom. They got a bedside commode. They figured out how to get her bathed and dressed and just get life under control. And as those challenges got solved, her anxieties fell, and she lifted her sights. She didn't have children. She was a teacher, and she wanted to teach again in the time that she had. My daughter ended up getting lessons for the next four weeks with her. She lived for six more weeks. In the last week, they then had two recitals for her. One of, um, one of the uh, students that she'd had in the past who flew in from all over the country to play for her. And then the other of her current students from elementary school to high school. And we sat in her living room and listened to these children play. And then afterwards, Peg uh, took them aside one by one, and she had a little something for them. And what she had set aside for my daughter Hunter was a book of music that she wanted her to, to learn and to keep. And then one more gift, which was she put her arm around her and said, you're special. And I don't want you to forget that. Um, and she wanted all the children to know that. That gap was extraordinary to me. We never imagined to ourselves that there was that life worth living and that medicine could was actually in our neglect and in our unwillingness to ask those questions about what matters to people, that we were actually sacrificing those abilities. And that furthermore, it's not just at the very end that we need to ask these questions. We need to ask these questions from the minute people start needing our help. When you have a parent who's frail enough where a question comes up of whether they can live at home or not anymore, or where they have other illnesses that aren't going to go away. Being able to ask, what are your priorities? What really matters? Her priority was she wanted to teach, 
another person I spoke to, they said, if I can eat chocolate ice cream and watch football on television, that'd be good enough for me. I'd be willing to go through a lot for that. <laughs> if I can't have that, let me go. It's like the best living will ever. <laughs> and I tell the story of my dad who had a brain tumor. And I said, chocolate ice cream, football on television, what do you think? Not good enough for him. <laughs> for him, it was sitting at the dinner table with family and friends. He was an extremely social person, and it was food and talk that was life for him. And his tumor would eventually take that away, and we knew it. And being able to know and have that discussion and to have that clarity that there can be goals besides just living longer and that we can fight to be able to have people um, have those. The, um, the striking thing to me, uh, and where I'd love to open it up, is that in medicine and in society, we fail to recognize that just fixing problems and making them go away is not the only way we can provide help. That in very difficult situations, a serious illness, a disaster of any kind, being able to say for a minute, what is the goal? What are we fighting for now? What are we willing to lose along the way and what are we not willing to lose is transformative. And somehow we haven't had those conversations. We have to have them earlier, we have to have them more, and we have to do it better. We've had a 50-year experiment in the medical world with not taking that approach of having a very narrow focus on defeating disease without thinking about the larger idea of well-being, that well-being is bigger than just health, independence, and survival. We want to be healthy and we want to be independent. We want to survive for reasons and that we can still serve those even when health and independence aren't possible. By failing to recognize that, we had 50 years of medicalizing mortality and the result has been suffering incredible cost. But we are capable of taking a wider view of becoming consistent and more systematic about being clear about our goals, whether it's in our senior retirement communities, nursing homes, medical practices, or elsewhere. It is not actually that much to change. In the three years since we released the book, we've gone from thinking that these conversations were death panels about whether you fight or give up, and as if the choices are we should be getting people to all give up, but instead to be about what are we fighting for for you along the way. And so it's not that much to change, and yet it's everything. Thank you. Thanks so much. <clears throat> in the um, circles I run in, discussion of your book is really like cocktail party. <laughs> um, many of us. You sit our... there talking about, you know, would you want the chocolate ice cream? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, certainly, uh, many of us uh, in in my um, social circle and demographic have had parents who've, you know, faced uh, aging and terminal illness and. Uh, your book has provided uh, um, many great models for us to help us refine our thinking about this. So I've got a bunch of questions for okay. you. I'm going to try not to monopolize your time. 
uh, to give the audience a chance to ask a few too. One simple but profound point that your book makes is that aging is really a, a recent phenomenon. For most of human history, people didn't really get get old. Um, and medicine really pushed out um, the frontiers faster than society and policy has been able to keep up with. And um, we've been trying to adapt and, and some of the, um, you write about some of the people who've been real innovators and in trying to address some of the issues that you that you've discussed today and, and discuss at length in your book. You write about Karen Wilson, the visionary who pioneered the concept of assisted living, and I was uh, really surprised to hear what the origins were. So can you tell us what she originally had in mind and how that all played out? Yeah, let me try to um, put it a little bit in context. So 1900, um, so a century ago, the average survival in the United States was you, your life expectancy was in your mid-40s. Um, and that was a typical life. You'd have seven kids, <laughs> and you would um, have them as early as possible so they could be helping take care of you when you were 45, because at that point you were getting pretty old and it's hard to even function and work at the same way. That said, you had five or 10% who would live you know, the, about 70 years or so, but it was a very small part of the population. Um, and uh, where that dramatically changed, so in the course of this century, we have added, on average, more than 35 years to people's life expectancy. Um, and that is a dramatic shift. Now, we also have made it so that you have phenomenally better health along the way, but you still likely have eight years of dependency. Um, and we don't like thinking about that. Now, the, the further thing is that as uh, you get older, uh, a psychologist at Stanford named Laura Carson signed to devote a whole chapter because she's completely fascinating. She's followed people for 30 years as they age. Um, and, uh, and as people age, she found, yes, your health goes down. Yes, um, you start losing functions. Sorry, that's just what happens. <laughs> um, but they also become happier. They are more likely to be fulfilled. They become more likely to have love in their life. They become less likely to have anxiety and depression. They become less focused on uh, acquiring stuff, you know, getting more toys, bigger house, um, all the status symbols. They become less focused on building their social network. They become more focused on deeper, more intimate relationships with a smaller, tighter group of people and spending real time with the people. Uh, and, uh, and so the, um, the recognition that what we build for that phase of life is a health system that assumes your goal is health and survival, that, that without health and independence that surely life sucks. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, is that even as your health and your functions dec uh, decline, you ha can have even, an even more fulfilling life as time goes on. Karen Wilson's mother had a stroke at age 50 and, um, and became paralyzed uh, on one half of her body, but she was otherwise there. Um, you know, wheelchair bound, she needed help and assistance in, in daily life. But you can imagine in your 50s then, you're in a nursing home needing assistance and, um, and no one thinks you have a life worth living anymore, that the only thing worthwhile was, you know, just being fed and getting right, the right medicines and being safe. And the people who make decisions about where uh, someone will live in old age is usually not the old age person themselves. It's usually the adult children of that person. And they're usually, 
you know, pushing them to go do these visits because um, they'd feel like they're not safe at home. And so their number one question when they go around is, will my father, will my mother be safe? Um, not, will they be lonely? Will they be happy? Will they be satisfied? Will they be fulfilled? Do they, are they going to be helpless? Are they going to have things they can do? Can they still grow? Can they still learn stuff? Um, and Karen's mother was young enough and, and bullheaded enough to say, I want a place where I have a lock on the door where I can you know, cook my own food, do my own thing. You mean in the refrigerator you could have whatever food you want? You know, like that's totally against the regulations. <laughs> a diabetic could have a soda in the refrigerator. And, uh, and the revolution of assisted living was the idea that you would genuinely have control over your life, that people would be coming into your home, it's your apartment, and helping, take, helping you um, have the independence of making choices for yourself. And that was originally the way it built, that she built it. It spread, it was very popular. Um, and then uh, as it became a Wall Street phenomenon <laughs> where um, uh, then the, and the two things happened. Number one, we started applying the rules of nursing homes to it where the focus became again on more the safety than on the fulfilling uh, notion of it. And second, the whole training system behind it came out of the nursing home world and so they lost that sense of being about enabling people's privacy, autonomy, capability along the way. Um, I do profile a bunch of innovators who have made pockets work. One guy named Bill Thomas who calls himself a nursing home abolitionist and builds places where you can have your own pets, you, can, um, you live in small groups of 10 to 12 people, and they make them all um, uh, no more expensive than what Medicaid will pay for. Uh, and they've built, unit, they've built these places in every state in the country now. Um, but you know, the, the innovation, let me just add another point here. I know I'm going on. But um, one thing that is very interesting to me is some of the most exciting innovation that I see going on is in this particular space of recognizing the fact that people are going to get to live, on average, 85 years or longer in their lives. But we don't build products or capacity um, innovations for that community. And I think it's partly because the innovation cycle, you know, is that engineers often build for the problems they know and they see and they have. You know, uh, on my board of my public health institute is David Ebersman, who is the CFO of Facebook. And he would explain to me, like, you know, whenever they had any game released uh, on, the, on the Facebook website, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, they would get emails at 2 in the morning on Saturday what the hell with this game? This sucks. Like, you know, I tried to play it and this goes wrong and this goes wrong. It is constant iteration about stuff that you know and are deeply part of. Whereas going into the space of this world where you might have a 75-year-old trying to figure out how to navigate the world, uh, we don't think about how it's designed for that. Five years after the book ends, my mother has lived without my father now for five years. She turned 80. She had a car wreck. I'm trying to figure out how to get the keys away from her. She doesn't. That is freedom for her. That's like one of the most important things is she does not lose that control. Um, she went, I visited, had her visit the places in the book that were coming, some of the pioneering places. She actually picked one of them to move into as a senior retirement community. Um, 
And one of the first things she did there was she taught a class to the other senior citizens about how to access Lyft. <laughs> because that became her freedom. It is not designed for the 85-year-old people in this institution. Uh, you know, my mom just happens to be incredibly savvy <laughs> at being able to navigate on a very small screen how to, how to you know, pull up Uber and access it and get them to recognize which of the buildings in this 250-unit uh, this complex is the one that you need to come to to find me, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because you don't have an engineer who is iterating over and over again, like, yeah, I ran into this problem 50 times this week. I'm like, I got to fix this. So getting into that innovation cycle where you are in that world and you understand what's needed for expanding the freedoms and autonomy, just a side point while I've got you here, is, is worth gold <laughs> if you understand how to, how to go after these problems. Um, there are a number of people in the audience, and I know a number of people on the live stream who will resonate with this, um, being the, we have an employee group called the Grigglers who um, are... The Grigglers? Greg, Greg, oh, the Grigglers. Grigglers, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> um, and who are uh, fierce advocates for um, making technology accessible to aging people. Yeah. aging people, because we know some. <laughs> um, you mentioned the car keys for your mother. That's a real symbol for so many people. My, it was a struggle with my father, and what, even after he was functionally blind. Um, and what we ended up with the, was that he kept the car keys in the drawer by his, um, his uh, desk, but he, we didn't have the car anymore. <laughs> it worked out well. <laughs> um, okay. the, you, you write that the practice of geriatrics can really increase the chances that patients stay independent, do not become depressed, etc. But Medicare doesn't reimburse for many of these services, although they'll happily pay for a pacemaker or whatever. Um, so how should insurers, or more broadly society, think about these services in a way to so that we can get more people can get the benefit of them. I think it's really important, actually. And, and I had wrote a follow-up article in the New Yorker this January about about this um, general phenomenon. Um, what we're recognizing is that we built the health system, especially in the 1950s and 1960s, when the major value of scientific discoveries in healthcare was that they could rescue you. Um, penicillin is the classic case, right? You've got the pneumonia. Now I can cure it or a surgical procedure where we can take out the cancer or, or something like that. Um, as we developed computational capability in the 60s and the 70s, you started to be able to look at what's, go what's going to happen to people ahead of you. Uh, there's a famous study called the Framingham Heart Study that followed uh, the population of Framingham, Massachusetts over many years of time and then could really look at the predictors of what's gonna happen in the most crude ways, much cruder than anything that you know, about, that you know how to do now. And, um, but that's where we figured out that high blood pressure, which we didn't even know was a disease, was in fact one of the biggest causes of um, cardiovascular disease, including heart attack, stroke, uh, and dementia. And that if you could control it with very cheap drugs that were available, you had remarkable effects on people's lives. Well, fast forward to where we are now, add in genomics, add in the ability to look at 
your you know, zip code is even more powerful than your genetic code in predicting what kinds of um, illnesses and conditions you may be facing. Uh, being able to look at your buying patterns to see what the indications are about your pattern of living and other things like that. Being able to have wearables that now can track not just your pulse, but your sleep habits, your um, uh, eating habits, and, and other things like that. Build those in and then make it so we begin to integrate that information back into our understanding, a, a, a clinician and a patient working together around the goals they consider they've identified as your most important goals. That's what a geriatrician is doing in analog. A geriatrician is following people over a long period of time, in, not doing any procedures, but acting ahead of problems. Problems like, is this person gonna be at risk of falling? Having a geriatrician reduces the likelihood that someone who's elderly has a serious fall that results in a fracture, increases the likelihood they can live at home independently, those kinds of things. Well, that analog capability, we under-resource because we've built a system for rescue, not for, as I call it, incremental care, not for prediction, maintenance, and systematic care. That ability is only exploding now. In fact, I argue that our evidence is that um, our ability to act predictively and incrementally has now exceeded the value of our rescue capability, and that will only increase. We sell insurance on a yearly basis. It's built for rescue payment. Uh, we are instead acting now on things that will, will take five, six, 10 years to make a difference. And so um, insurers typically only have you for a little bit of time before they bounce you to something else. And so that whole market has to change. We have to move from a insurance model to a subscription, or really I'd argue almost a mortgage model where you're in for 30 years and you make investments now together that pay off down the road and how much you're able to keep on working and be productive for society and, and, uh, and, and contribute in all kinds of different ways. So there's pretty fundamental things that I think are seeded in computational capability that right now doctors do in very analog ways and it's reflected in how we take care of people in aging. Um, I'm gonna ask another question, but if we have audience questions, feel free to line up at the um, microphones in either aisle. Um, you mentioned the zip code uh, being important. Um, so that leads me to ask about socioeconomic factors in terms of access to care, the kinds of care that people seek the things they care about. Is there a significant interaction of various socioeconomic factors with the, um, with the topics you discuss in your book? Yes, um, there are very uh, significant ones. Um, on the one level, the, let's start with the very narrow subject of do you get the, do you have a relationship with a clinician that um, where you've had a discussion and have discussions about what your priorities are. It is much more likely among college-educated women uh, and, um, uh, and people who are better off socioeconomically um, that they will have those conversations, have a relationship, a trusting relationship with a clinician, and then the result is that they get better care along the way. The least likely are um, high school education only, male, and especially minority, um, uh, but you know, give me a high school educated male, they're the least likely to have long-standing relationships in healthcare, and especially with someone who would have these conversations to have the goals set 
and to be able to uh, have that before crisis comes. Um, you go a little bit farther, and we, and this is my now public health hat on, uh, I'd done an analysis that um, got some press a couple months ago while the ACA was under attack and under, under uh, an effort to repeal it. Um, and what we found was looking at the last 10 years of data around um, people who'd gained Medicaid. Uh, so there have been Medicaid expansions and then the ACA expansion. And the interesting thing is that the biggest benefit, um, first, is not that for people's health wasn't that they got emergency care. Uh, they were getting emergency care, just bankrupted them. So the most immediate effect was that they received financial protection and debt went down, bankruptcies went down. Then as people get a regular source of care over time and get access to needed medication, they are much more consistently getting care. And it took about five years, but you start to see mortality reduction at five years. It's about a 6% reduction in mortality. And then it's about a 1% increase in mortality for the, uh, after that. And the biggest gains are in the chronic disease arenas. So it's um, gains in hypertension and diabetes and in heart disease, HIV, um, and uh, cancer care. So people with those kinds of conditions are the ones that fared the best. And it's a reflection of the fact that it's consistent care over time and that the people who are getting that are really at the highest socioeconomic ends. We have about a um, greater than 15-year difference in life expectancy between the top 10% earners and the bottom 10% earners. But we see between cities, like San Francisco and Boston, it's only a six-year difference between the, um, the bottom and the top. Go to Las Vegas and it's a 25-year difference. So those socioeconomic factors are very important and powerful. And I think the way they play out are in the likelihood that you have consistent, regular source of care, the needed medication, because I think that's the evidence of what is ultimately life-saving and improves the quality of life. Thanks. Yeah. We've got a number of people who are interested in asking questions. So yes. if we can start over here, please. Uh, hello. Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, my aunt passed away this morning. Oh, gosh. Um, Sorry. She Well, actually, everyone was quite happy. She'd been a vegetable for about four years okay. um, because of Alzheimer's. Um, I was wondering what the state uh, in the medical community was right now about not treating people. The place she was in was just so good at making sure she didn't catch the pneumonia and was well fed and didn't get the bed sores by flipping her over correctly, which sounds good in some sense, but for her it led to like a much longer life than she would have rather had. So I was wondering if you could comment on the state of what things are now. Did you feel that you knew that she had expressed what she would be willing to go through and not willing to go through? Um, well, she was very religious, so like a doctor-assisted suicide would have been out of the question for her. So she wanted some sort of system where she would catch a disease like pneumonia and die. Right. But but they weren't letting that happen. So I think that's really crucial, um, that uh, when the first thing that has to happen is people have to have the conversation. And it's amazing, actually, that she, as she was progressing with Alzheimer's, that you, you all had a conversation enough to know that those were the kinds of decisions she would make. Then the second question is, can people follow through on what she's asked? Do we actually listen and then follow through? The, uh, the first world is the uh, clinical world. And uh, a lot of the time, people are very uncomfortable being willing to listen to say, look, it, it is. Um, you know, sometimes people call pneumonia uh, 
man's best friend because it is painless um, and it is not uncommon in Alzheimer's disease that you either get a urinary tract infection or a pneumonia. And, um, uh, and then people may say, my father was one of them, he got a pneumonia towards the end. Um, my mother did not follow through on, I, I told the painful part of our story, which is that um, then when he could no longer make decisions, my mother reversed hospice, called 911 when he, when he became diff, beca got difficulty breathing, came to the hospital, they resuscitated him, gave him antibiotics, and he signed himself out at 5 a.m. in the hospital saying, God damn it, this is not what I wanted. Like, you know, I woke up and here I am and now they won't give me pain medicine because they say it stops me breathing so he's in terrible pain. And he'd had an easy way out and now wasn't, that, that wasn't happening. So then he said, you know, now you, a tool, are the one you have to listen to me. This is what I want to say that we really are going to do. And even his own colleagues in the hospital wouldn't, follow through and listen to what he had to say. There was no like lawsuit at risk here. They just couldn't wrap their head around the fact that he had priorities. And those priorities were about a kind of life that he wanted to be able to live and he could, if he couldn't live it, then let him go. Um, and so one barrier is the, are the clinical places and, and they can be very safe, take wonderful care, really be caring people, but not listen to what she has indicated is the quality of life. They, they would be the kind of place that also would say, you know, if she was stealing cookies, wouldn't let her have the cookies because it wouldn't be safe, right? And being able to recognize that you have a right to express what your goals are and have people follow those goals. And so this is a movement, and it's important that we really drive it as a movement. Medicare, I testified for the Senate last year on this, and uh, Medicare, uh, sorry, nursing home regulations for the first time uh, became included that you would have a right to decide what your sleep schedule is, that you should have a right to decide when you want to eat, and that you would have a right to have privacy, and, um, and within certain limits, some choice about who your roommate is. And, you know, that's like the beginning, like that's the most meager level of rights you can imagine, but it's the start of being able to do that. The last thing is that the family sometimes are the ones that do it as well, that can violate it as well. In, uh, we've called it, um, one of my colleagues has called it the seagull syndrome. The family member who lives farthest away flies into town and craps all over the plan. <laughs> and so it's, you know, you have to come to, we have to be able to name what is the plan, what do we, you know, who will make decisions when you can't, and what are your instructions for them about what really matters. Thank you. Well, let's see if we can get through the questions. Yes. Sorry, I, my answers are all long. Sorry, I'll try to be <laughs> pithier. Yes. Hi, uh, thanks for the talk. Didn't expect to cry at work today, but... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah. So in the cancer study you mentioned earlier, you said that the people who also received palliative care lived 25% longer. Seems like one explanation could be that they had something to fight for to live for and their body's natural defenses maybe stepped up. Is there any research into this uh, topic? Yeah, it's hard to know exactly, but my suspicion is um, that that uh, we know, for example, getting chemotherapy or, uh, or surgery that is non-beneficial only makes you worse. They're toxic, you know, surgery is easy to imagine. 
almost 10% of the population has an operation, a last-ditch operation in their last week of life. Um, you get all of the complications. You get all of the setbacks from that. You haven't had time to heal to actually benefit from it. And chemotherapy can be that way as well. But we have a hard time. It feels like giving up to say, I'm not going to go for the chemotherapy. But if the chemotherapy is sacrificing, making you lose what was worth living for in the first place, then, then that can be a harm in and of itself. So we know at least some of it is just taking away the toxicity of therapies that um, that are harmful to most, even if they benefit some few. Uh, the second component may well be that, that story. Um, in the one nursing home I wrote about, where Bill Thomas, the nursing home abolitionist, was the medical director, he got a start by deciding he was going to let people have pets. And of course, everybody freaked out. <laughs> the staff, the director, the regulators, you know, it's not safe. You can't let a pet. Suppose someone has allergies. Who's going to clean up the poop? Um, all of those kinds of questions. But he got it through. People got to have their own pets. And suddenly, getting to have something that you cared for, something that gave you love, life as part of what you're doing, something to look forward to, um, whatever it was about it, the use of antipsychotics and antidepressants fell by a third, and, and survival increased. So there's something to both. Thank you. Hi. It seemed like reframing the question um, and addressing the problem in a different way uh, was crucial to this book. Uh, what other areas of medicine or society at large do you think really need to have the problem reframed? More and more, I find that um, having had that problem reframed in that way to say, which, which is basically, now what's the goal? Knowing that the goal has to be bigger than the survival question. I find I run into this all the time and that people run into it frequently. That basically, bad situations, handling bad situations are often where um, organizations and individuals uh, hit the wall. You start, you know, you made a plan it was to achieve X goal. You forget the goal, and then you start plowing ahead on the plan. But when it doesn't work out, things aren't really what you hoped they would be. We don't often reset and really ask, what is the goal uh, along the way? What, what are we actually trying to accomplish? And, um, and, then, uh, and then how do we align what we're doing with that goal? So um, that can be as uh, simple as, um, you know, any situation where you are, you require the help of others, that coordination is always about setting the goal. In retrospect, I'd written my previous book, for example, about um, surgical care and the use of checklists and, and trying that out in surgery and applying, you know, the ways that people had handled safety and aviation and everything else. And what we were slowly learning about, so, so that in that book I talk about how we designed a checklist where you would um, run through 19 key steps out of data showing us where the biggest failures in, in surgery were that could be averted. That um, this two-minute checklist before every operation um, reduced deaths 47% across eight cities in the world. We now have replicated it. We rolled it out in France. It was a 35% reduction in mortality across France, 27% in uh, Scotland, 22% in South Carolina. Um, and then we've slowly picked apart what has made it work. And we're getting bigger benefit than just, you know, it's like make sure you have an antibiotic and make sure. 
that um, you identified the right patient. <laughs> You're operating on the right person, <laughs> doing the right operation. Um, the biggest values come from, comes from the team actually stopping and figuring out, all right, what is the goal here today? You know, it's um, the nurse, the anesthesiologist, the surgeon saying, just for a minute, um, here's my, you know, the surgeon reviews, what, what's the goal of the operation? What's the plan they're planning to go through it with? The anesthesiologist reviews, what are the medical issues of the patient and the concerns that the team should be aware of that's in their mind? The nurse reviews, what's the equipment situation, infection control, any questions that they have, and only then you proceed. And that's where the biggest benefit is turning out to come from, is the ability to be coordinated around a complex goal and then having feedback points along the way to say, has the situation changed? Do we have to reorient in, in other ways? So they reset again at the end of the operation. Now what's the goal for the next 24 hours of recovery? And have we made sure all of the orders and all of the plans are lined up and the communication is set that way? It sounds so kindergarten, like you would think, you mean you didn't do this already? <laughs> and the answer is, we don't. We don't. Um, and unless you make it a kind of systematic part of what you do, uh, you really do, um, you, you, you end up with suffering in whatever form you're dealing with. Thanks. Thanks. Hi. Um, you, touched you touched on this topic a couple of times peripherally already, but um, in your book you have a couple of examples of people who um, ended up having to go to assisted living facilities because of the, like, the very real health hazards they face. And so where do you draw the line between um, like allowing them autonomy, allowing patients autonomy, and like where they're at real risk, especially for patients who might not fully comprehend their situation? Yeah. Um, it's, a, it is, it's, a t it's a hard question, right? So um, do you allow autonomy for people to make mistakes in their life? And the answer is, is we, um, that just because you now are in a wheelchair shouldn't mean you lose all ability to have that set of rights in that discussion. Um, someone with Alzheimer's is not able to make those choices with um, full appreciation of the situation they're in, depending on what stage they're in, sort of an advanced Alzheimer's. That said, the family's able to do that. And, um, and opening up the door to being able to say, well, just like the person who, who talked about earlier, the family, you know, about 70% of us will come to the end of life with a decision maker, someone else having to make decisions for us. And that person um, is ill-equipped if they've never had that discussion about what really matters to you. But then at that point, they um, uh, have to be able to know, uh, you know, with that person, for example, they said that chocolate ice cream and football on television was what really mattered to them. The person I heard it from was his healthcare proxy, his daughter. And it, she talked about how important and meaningful that was for her because then when he turned out to have a bleed in his spinal cord where they said, well, we can take him back to the operating room now, but he will likely be quadriplegic. She could ask the question, well, will he be able to eat chocolate ice cream and watch football on television? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, and the, this is not at a level where that would be sacrificed. And she said it was an enormous relief to be able to know that I can make this decision and understand what he really cared about and to fight for him to make sure that the team followed through on what he really knew about and that they could hold the whole family together as they did that. So I think that um, 
that ability to, even if people can't make decisions for themselves, you can know by talking before crisis comes and be better equipped to be able to offer uh, the right direction when that moment comes. Thank you. Uh, so, hi. Uh, first of all, thank you for the book. My own father also died of cancer, and it mm. was it was a, a hard and necessary read. And I think it's interesting that your book came out about three years ago now, <laughs> and there seem to be these various sprouts of a larger discussion about end-of-life care uh, coming up not only from you but from various other sources. One thing I found interesting is that in the book you touch only very briefly on the subject of physician-assisted suicide, et cetera, and it, it's been – I been three years since I read it, so I don't want to mischaracterize your position, but you seem to largely sort of not even not so much rule it out, but think your position seemed to be that there were more important topics to discuss. But at the same time, you know, these other sprouts coming up, California recently passed its uh, assisted suicide law. My friend Hope Falk was part of that process of doing that. I'm curious, like, where is your thinking now about this? Is this something that we need to be talking about? Well, so the main concern I have is that um, the, the difference I ha have with the people who've been um, in favor of assisted death is that um, the goal to me is not a good death. The goal is a good life all the way to the very end. And we have been so, we've neglected that process so deeply. And it starts not just in the last weeks of life. It goes years ahead of that. That, um, you know, for example, uh, at the extreme in India, there is a bill that may well pass for assisted death. Um, now, India also is a place where you cannot get narcotics at home for, um, for, say, cancer pain, or even after, like, orthopedic surgery. You can't get that kind of pain relief. Um, and, the, uh, and so if you're in severe pain and we don't treat it and you're offered assisted death, I would absolutely take that option. Uh, that would be the merciful thing, but not it, when we have the treatment available. And so my great fear is, uh, like, like the piano teacher lying incontinent in pain in a hospital, uh, life doesn't seem to be worth living. If you'd said, well, you might be able to actually get home and teach for the time that you have, uh, she would not have said that assisted death. So, so knowing that she wasn't depressed, in other words, the, rule, the rules are know that you're not depressed, that you have a judgment from two independent clinicians, uh, and that you're making this with sound mind, doesn't address the question that we don't actually take good care of people towards the end of life. And as we try to take this uh, nationwide, um, in general, I'm not that alarmed by assisted death in the sense that it's less than 1% of the population that choose it. And then when people get... Um, the medication to be able to uh, take their own life, uh, less than half actually use it. It's often just a comfort to know it's there as an option for them. So uh, I have complex views on it because I'm not, uh, uh, you know, uh, totally 100% anti. I have lots of reasons why I think that uh, we're not valuing life adequately, however. I would worry if anyone thought this was simple. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thank you. And the last question. Hi, um, thanks for being here. I'm curious about what your vision um, for our country is in terms of like healthcare education, whether you think uh, there needs to be a way, a restructuring in the way that healthcare providers are thinking about end of life, or if it's 
more of the onus is on common day people, right, to be thinking a little bit more carefully about what they want uh, towards the end of their life. Um, and further, as you're researching for this book, I'm wondering if you noted uh, different trends within this country uh, that maybe changed the way we thought about death. And also if um, you noted maybe other cultures or other countries that maybe have healthier or have had healthier views on end of life care. Well, in general, what I would, uh, is a complex question. So let me try to answer <laughs> uh, it succinctly. Um, I, I don't, I think that there are, people often differentiate between Eastern and Western attitudes towards death. But when uh, I write a lot about um, the situation in India, and uh, and now I've seen it in China and in parts of Africa, um, and what we see is that as economies improve, people um, move away from extended families, they move into cities, they become more independent. Economics gives young people freedom, um, and old people um, uh, build up more wealth. When, what they choose, uh, at that point is that often that dying in those places too also becomes rapidly medicalized. 70-80% of dying in big cities like in Beijing or in uh, Delhi is now in hospitals and families going through this whole cycle of bankrupting themselves um, over care that um, no one is really having a discussion about it providing very little in value, in fact increasing suffering. The, um, the larger and so my, my larger view of it is that we're actually come, are coming out the other side in, in U.S. healthcare. We have now gone from less than 20% of people being on hospice when they come to the end of life to now it's 50% are, um, are there. It's become something that, you know, I didn't see a single death when I was growing up. My kids have all had uh, their friends uh, in the neighborhood where if someone has died at home, and they were part of that. They, they saw that process unfold over time and saw it be part of our culture again, in a way. And I think that's a very good thing, and it's becoming a less threatening thing. And we've come a long way from three years ago when the book came out, and it was about death panels discussions at that time, to where now um, there's not only my book, but Paul Kalanithi's When Breath Becomes Air, and you have Oliver Sacks' Gratitude published after he died, and, um, and, uh, and a wealth of other uh, discussions that are opening out and recognizing that we can be thinking about how to live a good life across the whole lifespan. Uh, and then the last thing about education is that um, uh, along the way, we have formed a coalition in Massachusetts that we're testing out the proposition of, it clearly can't be just the public campaign, but you need um, ways that we are all having these conversations more generally. But when people come into contact in the clinical world, less than 15% have this conversation with their clinician, even when they've had a hospitalization in the last year. Um, and if they're gonna have it, the vast majority of the time, they have to start it. The clinicians are unwilling to. Clinicians aren't trained to, um, very uncomfortable. And so we have gotten agreement with um, all four medical schools in the state of Massachusetts to now incorporate the training into the curriculum and start that process. We're, wanting, we're trying to get the nursing schools now to incorporate it as well. So I think we're cr starting to create the pathway that um, these communication skills become more uh, widespread. But it's gonna, it, it's, uh, it's still an uphill lift. It's still a small percentage where uh, the clinicians really are comfortable and understand what I had to go out and write a book to learn about. So thank you so much for taking time out of your jam-packed schedule. And, and the hardcore fans that are still here <laughs> should join me.
Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback on this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. To discover more amazing content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle at Google Talks. Talk soon.